Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambutasa. So tonight I'd like to speak about the uh, seven factors of enlightenment or the Bochangas, how they are called in Pali. And they are sometimes also uh, called the anti-hindrances because they are you know, the opposite to the hindrances. And outside in the foyer, we have posted a, a piece of paper with the seven factors of enlightenment and also with a quote from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is one of the four great books in the collection of the suttas. It's called also the um, graduate sayings because it's, you know, it's... Um, it's arranged in the shapes of the ones, the twos, the threes, the fours, the fives, up to the elevens. And this quote is from the chapter of the tens. And it says, Whosoever is emancipated from the world does so by removing the five hindrances, firmly establishing the mind in the four foundations of mindfulness and cultivating the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment so that you know again is a way of to you know to sum up the buddha's teaching in a very short way so ayananda bodhi spoke about the five hindrances yesterday and also today a little bit and you know whenever the five hindrances are present and and we we are not aware of it whenever we are identified with, with the five hindrances, then, you know, we are under the sway of ill will, desire, sloth and torpor, doubt, or restlessness and worry, one of those five. But as soon as, you know, we're becoming aware of that those hindrances are present or that one of those hindrances is present in the mind, then what has been a hindrance becomes actually a, um, food for enlightenment because we can we can use anything what is happening in the mind as uh, nourishment you know for developing those factors of enlightenment to an ever greater degree and you know we don't need to do any kind of special meditation we can use and develop them in combination with any kind of meditation you know meditating on the breath, meditating on the body, recollecting the parts of the body. There are so many different, you know, objects of meditation which are taught in, in the teachings of the Buddha. We have been speaking so far only about, you know, meditating on the body, meditating on on the breath. So, you know, as soon as we set up mindfulness that's already the first factor of enlightenment. 
So, you know, if you're under the sway of any of the hindrances, like, for example, desire, as soon as you become aware of it, you already have established the first factor of enlightenment, which is mindfulness to a certain degree. So, and as soon as that factor is set up, then, you know, the other six factors slowly, you know, start to appear. So, you know, uh, practicing in that way increases our, our capacity to be affected by what we are experiencing. We become aware, you know, that experience is just like one thing, but it, it's a process. And through the practice, you know, through paying attention, we start to kind of look and penetrate into the process and then the process kind of, you know, breaks open and we start to experience insight. We, we start to see, you know, what it is conditioned, in which way, what it is constituted of, and we start to understand, you know, that we do have a choice in this process. We can align ourselves in a, in a way which leads to unwholesome results, or we can align ourselves in a way which leads to wholesome results. And uh, in order to be able to have that choice, we have to really first see what's going on. We have to see clearly. Because when we are under the sway of any of those five hindrances, as the little poster in the foyer shows very clearly, you know, then we are we are deluded, you know, by our experience because what we are seeing is not what is really happening. What we are seeing is what we are projecting onto what is happening. And then when we are under the sway of desire, for example, we see everything through a colored lens as it's out there on the poster and looking into the water which is colored with different dyes. And then we can see everything through a rosy um, spectacles, for example, and then, you know, everything looks much uh, different than what it really is. Or if we are under the sway of ill will, everything appears, you know, hostile. So this is the different projections, you know, which we can uh, fall prey to. And then we experience something which isn't really there, it's just in the mind. And then we react in a way which makes our deepest fears happening. They haven't been there in the beginning, but we have been creating it. And, you know, the phenomena which we're experiencing, they are not in and of themselves, you know, out to delude us. They are just what they are. And it's, you know, it's our own um, ignorance which you know, produces all kinds of dramas which are not really there. So that's why, you know, this practice can have such a, a total transformative effect onto our lives. We, we can't really control what's happening in the outside world, but we can learn to meet that which is happening in skillful ways and, and through meeting it in skillful ways our whole experience starts to change our world starts to transform and it all starts with uh, you know stopping and, and, and um, bringing mindfulness to our experience 
And that's again, you know, my, bringing mindfulness to our experiences is not something we have to, you know, we have to kind of crank up mindfulness. It's more like we have to open ourselves to awareness, which is already always here. We are just not aware. We are just not connecting with it, because if we are identified, you know, with our experience, and we're becoming angry, we're becoming carried away, we're becoming infected by doubt. We are becoming. We are, you know, going along with certain thought patterns in our mind, which are, you know, conditioned into our way of thinking since years and years, you know, since our early childhood, we're reenacting the past over and over again in small ways and in big ways, you know, and then we are surprised, you know, by similar experiences always happening to us, always the same story. It's not because it's it's really happening. It's just we we are we are making happening with our own mind. So these seven factors of enlightenment are, you know, those seven qualities which, if we develop them in our mind, then you know our experience will start to open up, and we we can see you know how we are co-creating our world. And through that seeing very clearly, it just starts to drop away. It's not something we have to, you know, make a, a willful determination to not do this or to not do that and, and become really very tight. And, and you know, the, this is what often is understood, what an ascetic is, is or what a monk or a nun can be, you know, that they are very tight about everything. They are very afraid of feelings, they're afraid of experience, therefore they hide themselves somewhere in a monastery and and just, you know, keep the world out. But that really I mean, doesn't work, you know. Otherwise there wouldn't be no more monks and nuns on the planet because it's it, it really doesn't work. Only understanding, you know, can can help us to you know to um to free ourselves from from our own ignorance, which is creating all of those uh, difficult experiences for us. So it's about, you know, having enough uh, power of, of recollection that we are remembering to just stop and open to the experience and not go against it or, you know, or trying to hold on to it, but just being with it, the experience as it is and allowing the experience to teach us about the way things really are. And if we can do that, you know, if we remember in the moment when there is identification ha- happening, if we can remember it, then, you know, mindfulness is here in that moment. And then we start to discern certain um, characteristics, you know, about experience. And that's then when the second, you know, when the second factor of enlightenment starts to kick in, which is called uh, investigation of dhammas or dhamma vichaya. This is when we, when we start to notice, oh, you know, everything is impermanent. 
but not not just starting to notice it, you know, in a conceptual way, but really experiencing it in the body. It's very, it's very, very simple. Therefore, it's it's not so easy to speak about it because it sounds like kind of nothing, you know. But it's that's real. The you know that's the essential insight, as I have mentioned yesterday, you know, which which sent the Buddha onto the path in the very beginning, and which also you know was the essential insight when he was sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, because he was you know contemplating his own past lives, which is you know, um, manifestation of impermanence, of course. And he was also contemplating the arising and ceasing of uh, beings, you know, that uh, when they pass away and they again come back. It's also a manifestation of impermanence. So it was, you know, impermanence is very central to, you know, to that insight which can liberate us from from suffering and from identification. So it sounds very, very simple, but it's not to be underestimated, you know, what a completely world-changing and uh, life-changing effect this has. And it had for the Buddha and it had for everybody else who ever, you know, got anywhere with this practice, had a very deep insight into the arising and ceasing. And through seeing that very clearly, the arising and ceasing, which is the first characteristic, impermanence or anicca, it becomes self-evident, you know, that everything which, arise, which is arising and ceasing is, is unreliable. But not in the sense, you know, that it, is, that it is not beautiful or that it is not attractive or that it is not wholesome, but it is not reliable in the sense that we can't rely on it, that it's never going to change. That's the only thing what is said. It doesn't say it's bad or wrong or anything. It just says don't rely on it because it's going to change and you don't know when. So this is the second characteristic and that's in Pali it's called dukkha. Instability or sometimes also it's called unsatisfactoriness. And sometimes it's also translated as suffering. And then, you know, if we become aware of those first two characteristics, the impermanence and the unreliability, then the third characteristic becomes evident also, which, which is called anatta in the Pali language. It's not so easy, you know, to understand maybe, and it is translated as not self. And what it basically, how we basically could, um, you know, um, define it is to say, you know, that which is impermanent and that which is unstable, it can't be owned. You can't call it me or mine because it's it's like whenever you kind of get it, it's just going to change and escape again. So it, it can be, you know, it can be used, it can be uh, enjoyed, it can be smelled and touched and tasted and all of that, but it can't be owned. 
So this is those three characteristics, you know, which are permeating all of our experience, all phenomena which can be experienced by any of the six senses. They share those three characteristics. And because, you know, we are operating in terms of our, our thinking mind operates through language, and, you know, language puts labels onto processes and calls them things, you know, because in order to communicate, this is just the way how the human mind works. So, and that's, you know, that has a very uh, deluding effect, actually, on our understanding of about how the way things are, because we really think that this is a, a thing, but it isn't a thing, it's a process. And if it drops down on the floor and it falls into pieces, you know, then you think, oh, you know, the, where's the glass gone? It hasn't gone anywhere because it never really existed because that glass, conventionally, it does exist. But if you really look at it, ultimately, it doesn't exist. It's just like a, a coming together of uh, causes and conditions which could change any moment. And then, you know, those bits which make up this glass, they go back, you know, to the elements and to never be seen again in, in the form of a glass. But they can come together, you know, into many other um, objects. So this is, you know, what is sometimes very difficult to understand because it sounds like a very um, negative way of, of looking at the world. Because it can be easily misunderstood, you know, that uh, things which, which do not really exist cannot be appreciated. But this is not the case. They can be even more appreciated for that, you know, if we, if we make ourselves aware of how fragile you know, our lives are, really. That doesn't mean that they lose, that lose any value or any... Um, it makes the whole thing even much more mysterious and, and um, wonderful. So those three characteristics, you know, once we set up mindfulness and we, we stay long enough with the process, then those three characteristics, they show themselves to us. And it usually starts with impermanence because that's the easiest one to see. And that's, you know, once they start to kind of come forward, you know, then the second uh, fact of enlightenment, as I said before, Dhamma Vichaya, or investigation of Dhammas, is there. And then if we stay with it long enough, then, you know, we start to discern those three characteristics. They make themselves known. And if we really see that for the first time, then energy comes up, you know, because interest ar arises naturally. Because we can say, oh, you know, that's really true what I've heard. It's, it, this is what's, what's really happening. And then energy is arising. And through that energy, I know we, we, we can put in more uh, mindfulness and, and the whole process you know, becomes comes deeper. And then through that depths 
choice starts to arise. That's the next factor. So the first one is mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, energy, or in Pali, virya. And then if we stay with the process, the next one which comes up is, is joy or rapture. It's sometimes also called, in the Pali language, is called piti. Not piti in the English language, but piti in Pali, <laughs> which means joy. And... And that's very energizing again, you know, and, and it keeps us interested in the practice. And this is like the joy, it's often compared, pity is compared with the joy which you could have, you know, if you walk through the desert for many days and you're very thirsty, and then you see the oasis in the, in the distance, this kind of a joy. You know, anticipating something good in the future, you know, or something uh, life-giving in the future. So that... And it can be a very, depending you know, on, on um, personalities, it can be very strong pity or it can be just very mild. And then if we, can, if we don't get carried away by that, by that joy, if we can stay with it and, and contain it, then it's starting to transform into uh, tranquility. Because, you know, someone who experiences joy doesn't want anything because they're already joyful. They don't need anything. And this is a joy you know, which doesn't come from sense gratification, but it is like sometimes it's also called Dhamma joy, which comes just purely from seeing truth. It's, it's a, a joy which is independent you know, from, from um, sense pleasures. And the Buddha spoke about that joy a lot and was saying that it's very important, you know, for developing insight. Without that joy, even a very subtle joy, without that, we can't really uh, focus on anything. Because if, if it's not attractive enough through having the joy, the mind won't go there. So, you know, it's, it's a natural progression. And you can't beat the mind to go there. You have to rely on this uh, natural development on those steps. You have to align yourself with that. Then, you know, the next step, the tranquility will automatically arise. And then the mind is satisfied through the pity. And then it, it is happy to settle down on the object. And then if it settles, you know, if it's, it's becoming tranquil, then... Um, Next uh, factor would be, which arises also naturally, is concentration or collectedness of mind. In Pali, it's called samadhi. And then, you know, if the mind is really settled and, and happy, you know, to stay with the object, then, then the next and the last of the seven factors which arises is equanimity. And, and that equanimity, you know, is the basis for for insight. So then the mind, you know, is really content to be with what it is right now, and is not shaken by anything. And and from that um, equanimity, it it can really look into the way things are. And this it prepares the mind for insight either, you know, for a little insight or for a fundamental insight, which can, 
you know, cut through one or more of the fetters, you know, which keeps us bound to ignorance. And then, you know, once we have had an insight, uh, bigger or smaller insight, you know, then our capacity for establishing mindfulness is increased. And then again, you know, the capacity for investigation of dhammas is increased. So it's, a, it's like a spiral, you know, self-perpetuating spiral. It's not going up, up, up. It's going down, down, down into the depths of the way things are. And there's increasingly more understanding and then through that understanding is more equanimity, more capacity for being mindful. On and on it goes, you know, until enlightenment. That's why they are called seven factors of enlightenment. Yeah, and, and how we can work with those seven factors of enlightenment is... Uh, you know, we just need to establish mindfulness we would, with whatever meditation uh, method we are doing. And then just seeing, you know, are the is, is an enlightenment factor of um, mindfulness, is it present or is it not present? It's in the same way as Ayananda Bodhi has been speaking about the hindrances. Just seeing, you know, is it present or is it not present? And then investigating you know, the conditions for the presence of an enlightenment factor or the conditions for the absence of an enlightenment factor. And then, you know, trying to, uh, you know, not create conditions for the absence and trying to create more conditions for the presence of enlightenment factors and also, you know, for the strengthening of the enlightenment factors. So exactly the opposite, you know, what we do with the hindrances. So it's, it's, you know, it's very, very simple. And, you know, the seven factors of enlightenment, they are considered, you know, this, they are considered the, one of the hallmarks of all of the teachings of the Buddhas. And they have been also compared, you know, with, with seven seven treasures and you know the suttas have it that you know that sometimes when when the Buddha or some of his disciples when they were ill for example when those seven factors of enlightenment is a, is a, a chant when the chant was chanted it would be so powerful it would heal people from illness also and you know on those seven factors of enlightenment they are not only factors you know, which are fundamental for spiritual development, for any kind of a skill you want to learn, you know, playing the piano, driving a car or sewing clothes or whatever you need to be mindful. You need to investigate, you know, how it's done. You need to put in energy. You need to, you know, focus on what you're doing. And you need to have like a certain equanimity, you know, to, to go through the process of learning and not be, you know, put off if you are not immediately succeeding and have to go through the, you know, discomfort of training yourself, making mistakes. So it's not like, it's, there are not outlandish qualities. They are very, very practical 
and very available and to anybody who, who, who wants to train in this way. And there, yeah, there's another quote uh, from the scriptures where the Buddha speaks about the seven factors saying, just as a river inclines and flows to no, just as a river inclines and flows towards the ocean, so the factors of enlightenment incline towards Nibbana. So you know it's it's a natural flow. And you know, we don't have to um push the river to go to the ocean, it's just happening. And the same with those factors of enlightenment. We just have to align ourselves and then we are going in the right direction and that's all we can do really. The rest is really not up to us really. It's just that we put in that that um, mindfulness and the effort and not stopping with it. Then at one point when the time is ripe, you know, the true nature of the Waysing Sa will reveal itself to us. If we if we try to push our way, it's just creating, you know, again, um, delusions for us because we are operating through the hindrances and then what we see is the projections of our own mind. And that's not the way things are. That's just past experience, you know, coming alive again and again and again. Oh yeah, but I also wanted to mention um, you know the most important internal factor for the seven factors of enlightenment to arise is according to the scriptures wise attention and the most important external factor for the seven factors to arise is spiritual friendship. So you know to frequent with people you know who who are not fools as we chanted when was that today at one point yeah it might sound like a little bit unkind but this is just how it is you know (laughs) that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be nice to fools but you don't have to be a fool yourself you know to be nice to fools and also if you are kind of not foolish you might be able to inspire others you know so it's, it's a good thing, I guess. And also we can, we can um, discern, you know, with those factors of enlightenment, there is, some of them are calming and some of them are energizing. So the first three are energizing. Um, mindfulness, Dhamma Actually, mindfulness um, is is both. It's, it can be energizing and calming. Actually, uh, the energizing ones are Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of Dhammas, uh, 
um, energy and um, rapture. They are, those three are energizing. And um, the other three, uh, tranquility, concentration, and um, equanimity, they are calming. And mindfulness can be used in both ways. And mindfulness is also sometimes it's compared in the context, it's compared to salt. Like in the kitchen, you know, salt you can use for any dish you're cooking or for almost any, any dish. Salt is the most important ingredient in the kitchen, whereas all others are more specific. I'm going to read that quote one more time. Whosoever is emancipated from the world does so by removing the five hindrances, firmly establishing the mind in the four foundations of mindfulness and cultivating the seven factors of awakening or seven factors of enlightenment. And I thought we could maybe chant that. Yeah. So we're going to chant now this chant, the seven factors of enlightenment in Pali, or the Bochangas. And also, as I said before, it's considered a very powerful chant for healing, sickness. It's not in the books, so we're going to chant it, and you can just listen. And, and if, you, if you know of anyone, if you have an illness yourself, or if you know of anyone who's unwell, then redirect uh, the intention to them. Let's chant. Pochanko Satisankato Dhammanang Vilchayotata Viriyang Pitipasa Dipochanka Chattata Pare Samadupeka Pochanka Satete Sabatasina Munina Samatakata Pavita Pahulikata Sangvatam Tiapinyaya Nipanaya Chapodiya Vetena Satchavachena Sotite Hotu Sabata Rekasmin Samayenato Mokalanan Chakasapan Kilanetu Kitetiswa Pochanke Satate Saite Chatan Apinantitva Rokamuchim Sutankane Etena Satchavachena Sotite Hotu Sabata Ekata Dhammaracha Pikelyanena Pipilito Chunda Terena Tanyevapana 
sharing of blessings on page 33, sharing the blessings of our practice for the benefit of all sentient beings. do that little ending after a Dhamma talk, that's saying, let's all uh, express our appreciation for the teaching that was given. So, so sadhu, sadhu means it's good, it's good, thank you. So. Okay, and now I'll chant the sharing of blessings. Let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, May the highest favors and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life, May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May your desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom 
austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Tamal. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. And we'll chant the closing homage on page 20. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.